Before we start this episode, a warning, you'll hear some disturbing descriptions of violence. It's April 2003, and Jane Araf is in Iraq. It's two weeks since American and British forces invaded the country, and Jane is there to cover the war for CNN. She's travelling along the front line when she hears that Iraqi forces are about to give up the ancient city of Mosul. The US Army would now be in control. We were driving around the circle that's near the governor's office and near the central bank. And the central bank had been set on fire, so there were flames coming out of the bank, and there were people running out of it, out of those flames, with armloads of cash, just as much cash as they could grab, and some of it was charred at the edges. And amid all that, there was gunfire. She'd assumed US forces would be there running Mosul. And we got to the center of the city, where I expected to see some sort of American presence, and there was the eeriest vacuum. No one there, no one keeping the peace, and a strange atmosphere. It wasn't euphoria that Saddam was gone, although there was some of that. It was more anger. It was like a carnival atmosphere. It was like a deadly, serious carnival. I'm David Dimbleby, and from something else, this is The Fault Line, Bush, Blair, and Iraq. In the last episode, we wrapped up the story of how war came to Iraq and how the arguments used for invading the country in the first place turned out to be false. No weapons of mass destruction were ever found. The weapons inspector, Scott Ritter, had been right all along. The weapons had been destroyed in the early 1990s. After the invasion, Bush sent out teams of inspectors to find these hidden weapons, and they all came back empty-handed. Every piece of so-called intelligence crumbled to dust. And then it began to emerge that the evidence for some of the claims about WMD was farcical. The 45-minute claim which Blair had used in Parliament was traced back to a taxi driver in Baghdad who said he'd overheard a conversation between Iraqi officials when he was driving them through the city. A piece of intelligence alleging Saddam was storing chemical weapons in glass test tubes. Turns out that MI6 now think the source who provided that information had lifted it from a Sean Connery movie called The Rock. And Curveball, Curveball with his fictitious story of mobile chemical laboratories hiding in the desert? Well, he's still in Germany. In 2011, a team of journalists on The Guardian newspaper found him. He lives with his wife and two children in a flat near Karlsruhe. He no longer gets money from the German Secret Service, and he's had his beloved Mercedes confiscated. But he says he's still proud of what he did, says he made up the story that was used to clinch the argument for invasion to help Iraq become a better place. Which, come to think of it, is what Bush and Blair were saying too. 
In this final episode, we're going to look at that so-called better place. We're going to step away from the arguments over intelligence and the debates between the politicians and what we've been able to piece together about meetings taking place behind closed doors and all that. Instead, we're going to look at Iraq and ask what happened next. To help answer that, I called up someone who's worked as a reporter in Iraq for nearly 30 years and who's seen it all. Hello, David. How are you? Hi, Jen. Sorry to be a bit delayed, but my all my equipment... In fact, she was the first journalist to set up a major Western news bureau in Baghdad. So I'm Jane Arauf, and I'm the former CNN Baghdad bureau chief and senior Baghdad correspondent. Jane went to Iraq to cover the first Gulf War back in 1991 working for CNN. And I thought it was the most astonishing place and the most challenging place I had ever seen because you didn't know what was real and you didn't know who was telling the truth. And half the time you didn't even know if people were who they said they were. And and if you had just one thing you could verify, that was just an incredible victory. So I kind of got hooked on Iraq. After the war was over, Saddam tried to persuade Western journalists to come back to Iraq and tell the world how well his regime was doing. The only channel that took up the offer was CNN. They couldn't actually find anyone who was both relatively sane and wanted the job, but for me it was a dream job. So that's how I came to live in Baghdad in 1998. Were people scared of Saddam? Terrified. Absolutely, incredibly terrified, and for good reason. A lot of people had had relatives arrested or executed just on the, the vaguest sliver of a rumor. You were always, as a journalist, conscious of the fact that you could so easily, and without thinking about it, get someone into terrible, terrible trouble. So you couldn't make friends with Iraqis. You had to be incredibly careful because the margin of error was so slim in which they could just be punished for anything. In November 2002, just four months before the invasion, Jane was thrown out of Iraq for what the government called hostile reporting. she just covered a protest against Saddam's regime. She moved to Turkey, which has a border with Iraq, ready to go back if she could. And did you expect war to come? Did you expect the invasion to happen? I didn't. And and I feel really naive now. I I thought, you know, I had covered the weapons inspectors. I had seen them do their jobs and find essentially nothing. And so it never actually occurred to me that they would carry this out. And on the eve of the war starting, um, the CNN news editor called because he had been told, as had the heads of other networks, that the war would start in a few hours. And I remember sort of saying, no, that can't be true. And, and him saying, you have to understand, this is going to happen. She crossed the border, and the first few days of reporting were like a whirlwind. She remembers people fleeing the cities, the supermarkets emptying, being in a town in northern Iraq. Live cameras, bright lights. With American bombardment going on behind her. And it was 24-hour shifts, and we were literally living in a barn because that was deemed to be the most photogenic location for that live shot. Staying there until eventually... They started mortaring the hilltop that we were on, so we had to flee. She was traveling through Iraq, reporting what she saw, and at first she felt perhaps there was hope for the country. Hope 
of a fresh start. You know, for so long, Iraq had been this place that I knew was full of incredible people and full of incredible potential. If only it weren't under an authoritarian regime. And a little part of me thought that maybe it could be a good thing. Maybe, you know, you could have the kind of country where Kurds and Arabs and Christians and everyone else could have a place in this country and they could have a fresh start. And then two weeks into the invasion, she hears Mosul, one of Iraq's ancient cities, is about to be liberated. Mosul has always been this extraordinary city. You know, Mosul has this incredible history. It was one of the capitals of Arab culture, and it was a major commercial point. It was known for all sorts of things, like making fabrics, and it had wonderful crafts, and it had intellectuals and artists, and the train station was gorgeous. It had these vaulted ceilings, and the train station at one point had what was considered one of the best French restaurants in the Middle East. And now it was free from the yoke of Saddam. When she goes there, she thinks she's going to find the American military in place, organizing, protecting the city. But instead... There was an absolute orgy of looting. Troops blocked the roads, but couldn't stop thousands of Iraqis from taking whatever they could. No Americans, no one in control, just an orgy of destruction. Freedom comes in many shapes. Theft here, replacing tyranny. Even the bank was robbed. She remembers going to Saddam's palace in the city, and there was a man standing in front of a big painting of Saddam. It was one of those portraits of Saddam Hussein that you found everywhere. And he had taken He had taken a knife out from under his shirt and he was stabbing and stabbing and stabbing and he was stabbing Saddam Hussein in the eye. And I remember thinking, he's going to get in so much trouble for that. And then realizing he wasn't going to get into trouble because Baghdad had fallen and and, and this was a whole different ball game. But he kept saying, they've lied to us. They've done nothing but lie to us. There was so much anger. And then of course, you know, that anger turned into a different thing. After the invasion, Saddam's regime didn't last long. Within a few weeks, George W. Bush was standing on the deck of the aircraft carrier, the USS Lincoln. Be seated, please. Behind him, an enormous banner that read, Mission Accomplished. My fellow Americans, Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. Because of you, the tyrant has fallen and Iraq is free. The military operation was over and now the reconstruction, everyone assumed, would begin. And now our coalition is engaged in securing and reconstructing that country. There was just one problem. They had not planned for anything like what happened. They weren't equipped to handle it. The U.S. forces were well-meaning but mystified. They didn't know what their mission was. 
The first American forces I met who parachuted into the Kurdistan region of Iraq had been briefed that they would be landing in a very hot country where they would be sweltering. They almost froze that night. Huddled up like puppies, you know, that's how they spent their first night, because it was freezing and nobody had briefed them it would be freezing at night in April. They weren't prepared for the environment, but nor were they prepared for their next mission, the rebuilding of Iraq. How did the Americans communicate with the Iraqis? Through interpreters, or did, they, did they, any of them speak Arabic? That was one of the most frustrating and one of the most dangerous things. I remember being with soldiers as they would do raids, house to house. They would shoot the locks off of houses. They would kick down the doors. They would burst in. And in some places they were saying, Mujahideen, because Mujahideen was a word that they had learned from a little booklet that they had, plastic laminated, a list of phrases that were thought to be useful to American soldiers going to invade Iraq. In fact, it wasn't devised by Iraqis, and and many of those words weren't used, so it was completely pointless to be asking who the Mujahideen were. And things were about to get worse. After telling the world military operations were over, Bush felt he needed to appoint an American to run the rebuilding process. In effect, a governor with absolute power, reporting only to the Secretary for Defence, Donald Rumsfeld, and the President. A man called Paul Bremer. Paul Bremer. What did you make of Paul Bremer? Well, he had nice suits that he wore with army boots and um, did not understand Iraq at all didn't really care to understand. He brought a Washington mentality with him. Bremer was a diplomat and a former State Department official, a dyed-in-the-wool conservative who once worked for Henry Kissinger. He was very ideologically driven. So he believed that they would come, they would bring democracy, and that anything to do with the Ba'ath Party, they had to get rid of. The Ba'ath Party was Saddam's political party, and was supposedly a socialist party. And those two things meant that for Paul Bremer, the Ba'ath Party had no place in any future Iraq. What is the effect of abolishing the Ba'ath Party? It meant two things mainly. It meant that people who had expertise could not go back to their jobs if they had been members of the Ba'ath Party, and almost everyone was expected to be a member of the Ba'ath Party, so you lost a lot of that expertise. When Jane says everyone, she means everyone. If you were a teacher, you were a member of the Ba'ath Party. If you were a civil servant, an engineer, the whole administrative class of Iraqi society, the people who made the country work, were cast aside by Bremer. It was as if history didn't exist. As if he were turning a new page without having read the novel, without having read anything before. It was as if they thought, you know, it was a blank slate and they could just create something that was in their, in their mind. This meant there was no one around with any experience to rebuild the country. To make matters worse, Bremer also decided to disband the army from top to bottom, lock, stock and barrel. With the stroke of a pen, essentially, there was no army. So there was nowhere to report for work. There was no money coming in. That was essentially it, out of work, out of money, no prospects, and told that basically you're not welcome in this new Iraq. 
Jane remembers being in Baghdad outside the green zone where the new American administration was based. And every day lined up outside the gates were former army generals. Who had dressed up in their suits for the most part, civilian suits, because it was a point of pride. And it was sweltering hot, but they would be standing there in their suits saying that they wanted to talk to an official. These were generals, mind you, generals who are used to being obeyed, generals used to commanding men. And now they were having to plead with these young American soldiers just to try and get a meeting with someone. What some of them wanted was to let the Americans know that they could play a role in this new Iraq, that their loyalty was to Iraq, their loyalty was to that institution, the army. It wasn't to the man, it wasn't to Saddam Hussein. And the answer they got, if they ever got an answer, and many times they didn't get an answer, was that there was no future for them. All of this helped create a volatile society ready to explode. Hundreds of thousands of young men, often trained by the army, now jobless and looking for something to do. And they started taking out their rage and anger and frustration on the Americans. As Bush announced the military campaign was over, violence flared up across Iraq. I remember when the UN was hit with a truck bomb. An ordinary press conference at the UN headquarters here. Then this. And I was in the CNN bureau and, and it came on the radio. There was radio traffic that the UN building had been hit. And I thought, no, that must be wrong. Who would attack the UN? This was where the bomb rigged in a truck went off. A massive explosion. Nearby cars caught on fire. And then we rushed down there, of course, and it had collapsed, and it was the start of something. And then we realized that this was a completely different ballgame, that nothing was going to be safe. More about that after this short break. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now.
Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently, ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. Joe, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you well. How are you? Uh, this is Nabil Saleh. He's talking to my producer. Uh, we don't have good weeks here. Like yesterday, rockets landed in central Baghdad and a child was killed. He's an Iraqi journalist and photographer who grew up in Baghdad. We lived in a beautiful house in a beautiful upscale neighborhood in western Baghdad. And we had a big front garden where we had a Sisyphus tree, a palm tree, a fig tree, and a naranj tree, this uh, sour, citrusy fruit. And we would play football on the grass, barefoot, me, my brother, and my cousins. And my late grandfather on his wheelchair sometimes would be the referee. And we would also play hide-and-seek until late in the night in the, in the neighborhood. It was very safe. He was about 11 or 12 when the Americans came. And they would stay on, on our rooftop because our house overlooked a nearby bridge. Sometimes, you know, I was curious about who they are. and I spoke a bit of English. Many of my friends and my neighbors, you know, my peers, were uh, fans of the Backstreet Boys and uh, Five, that uh, British boy band. He'd chat to the American soldiers about American things, and he liked some of them. But a few months after the invasion, the American soldiers became less prominent, no longer in control of the streets, and they were being replaced by Iraqi men in camouflage, armed with AK-47s or machine guns. They would roam the streets. We would constantly, like every now and then, hear of a relative or a friend receiving death threats and forcing them to, to leave the neighborhood. These were the militia who were trying to claim power in Iraq. Because of Paul Bremer's decision to stand down the Iraqi army and dissolve the Ba'ath Party, there was a security vacuum, no one to keep the peace. The Americans were being attacked at random by car bombs or roadside devices. Just south of Baghdad, they celebrated another attack on American troops. And any rapport they'd built up with the Iraqis had now turned to mutual suspicion. U.S. soldiers would burst into people's houses late at night looking for hidden weapons or terror suspects. Constantly uh, knocking on your door. In dawn raids, they broke into dozens of houses. Coming inside and uh, doing some inspection, looking for arms. The gloves are off here. This is war. And then, adding to this atmosphere of distrust, came a new element that divided Iraqi from Iraqi, a religious division that had been dormant under Saddam. Whether you belong to the Sunni or the Shia branch of Islam, the two major denominations. In Saddam's day, this division hadn't really mattered. Sunni and Shia and Christian lived peacefully side by side. But in 2005, that's two years after the invasion, the Americans set up the first democratic elections that Iraq had ever seen. And elections, as we know all too well, 
can exacerbate the underlying divisions in a society. And it's what happened in Iraq. The Shias were a majority, but they'd been kept out of power under Saddam, who was a Sunni, and who'd surrounded himself with fellow Sunnis. And when the election took place, the country split along sectarian lines. Shia groups who'd been suppressed under Saddam finally won political power, and the Sunnis were left on the sideline. In response, Sunni militia groups started emerging across the country. Somehow the Americans hadn't seen this coming. Sunni groups like Al-Qaeda, not only attacking the occupying army, but also attacking their fellow countrymen who were Shia. And then Shia militia groups in return springing up to defend themselves from the Sunnis. Inside the cordons, crowds of angry young men. Neighborhoods defined by whether they were Shia or Sunni and often divided by checkpoints run by militia. The Shiite militias were out in force at the scene of the Baghdad bombings, very publicly taking charge of security. This fear that was surrounding them, the fear of visiting a certain neighborhood because, for example, Jaysh al-Mahdi or al-Qaeda are in control. Oh, I'm Sunni, what, what they will do to me? I'm Shia, what they are going to do to me? They will kidnap me, they will kill me. This fear overshadowed the city. The secular Iraq of Nabil's youth was disappearing, the streets descending into chaos. One day they, uh, you know, a car pulled off just around the corner and they uh, threw the bodies of two women in the dumpsters, uh, like 20, 30 meters away from, from my house. And the bodies stayed there for, for a long time and we, we smelled uh, the... The portrait odor uh, of, 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 of the corpses, uh, you know, just thrown in the open. One day, Nabil's mother was unlocking the gate at his house. And she found an envelope with a death letter, giving us three days to evacuate the house. Why, why would you have got a death letter? Because we come from a different sect than that uh, of the militant, militants who were uh, in control of, of the neighbourhood. This had become everyday life in Iraq. The Iraq the Americans and the British had unwittingly created was an Iraq in chaos. The Americans will be able to retake Fallujah in the next day or two. The question is, what will be left of the town? And with militant extremists roaming the streets. And will this really root out the insurgent? will simply kill and anger more Iraqis. The exact opposite of their declared aim, a world free from terrorism. Can you t give me an idea of what it was actually like when you were in some of these places and there were car bombs going off and things? I mean, was it, it must have been very, was it frightening? How did you, how did you, mm. how did you yourself cope with it day by day? Um, this is Jane again. I didn't find it frightening because I had turned off that part of my brain, I think. And particularly, as you know, if you're doing live broadcasting, you can't be frightened. And if you're frightened or 
visibly terrified. It just does not work. And also, you know, this was what Iraqis lived with every single day. I had the luxury of being able to leave if I wanted to, but they, they certainly didn't. It was deeply, deeply depressing. It was um, just the, the constant loss of life, the destruction, the incredible destruction was just soul destroying. In 2011, most American troops left Iraq, and for a few years, an Iraqi government, albeit a corrupt government, ruled the country. Things were a bit more peaceful, but it didn't last. As the American flag started disappearing across Iraq, another flag was being hoist on the streets. A black flag with Arabic writing across the middle, which read, There is no God but Allah. ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria... Led by the charismatic Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and with many of its leaders drawn from the ranks of Saddam's former army. The army Paul Bremer had so abruptly dissolved. At first, they were welcomed. Inside the city of Mosul today, Sunni civilians celebrated the presence of ISIS. Especially in somewhere like Mosul. They seem to think the Islamists can do no wrong. They didn't even have proper services like electricity. And all of a sudden, here was this group that promised good governance. You know, people would obey laws. There would be no corruption. And for a few weeks, it seemed that that kind of worked. And then ISIS made clear what it really was, which was a group that made al-Qaeda even look relatively benign. They were so brutal. The cameraman who filmed these pictures for ITV News was told this was the prelude to the public hanging of a captured Iraqi officer. It's extraordinary when you talk to people who lived in Mosul through that ISIS period to hear what life was like, the public executions. You know, one of, one of the difficulties of being a journalist, of course, is you hear so many horrific stories and you try as best you can to triangulate them, to make sure that they're actually accurate, that people aren't innocently exaggerating or that they didn't get it wrong because you don't want to be relaying wrong information. And for the longest time, I wouldn't report things like people being beheaded because I would think, you know, sometimes in Arabic, when they say beheaded, they just mean killed. And I would think maybe they're exaggerating. And then I realized, there were actually people being beheaded. I talked to a man who had been there throughout the whole time, and he was a guard, so he, he saw a lot of stuff, and he was an old guy. And he told me about neighbors of his where one of the boys had been beheaded in public because he had said a swear word when he was playing soccer. The ISIS reign of terror lasted in the city for three years, but then the Iraqi military, backed up by the US Air Force, attacked. Tens of thousands of civilians were trapped, entire city blocks leveled to the ground. This is not what liberation was supposed to look like, but the horrendous level of destruction all around is testament to just how ferocious this battle has been. 
it looked as if nothing had ever been there. I mean, you would walk down those streets and they would be completely silent. The trees were gone, and because the trees were gone, the birds were gone. There was just rubble. I mean, every once in a while, in between the rubble, you could see like someone's red shoe or a photo of a girl. All escape routes from this city have now been cut off. The old ancient city with the grand train station, the best French restaurant in the Middle East, the museums and the artists and the intellectuals, all reduced to nothing. And for the cruel, warped defenders of IS, fighting to the death is the goal. When you look back on it, the 15, 17 years, What's your emotion? What do you feel about those times? I think I'm a bit like, well, you know, no one obviously has a stake in this, as Iraqis do, right? They're the ones who've lost their homes. They're the ones who've lost their homeland. And I remember sitting in the airport not very long ago, maybe five, six years ago, and watching Iraqis I knew carrying these plastic bags with documents from the International Organization for Migration. They're the documents you get when you are taking your last flight out to be resettled. And, you know, during my career since 2003, I've watched that country empty of people who have endured terrible tragedy. And I've watched people stay as well. I mean, Iraqis are incredibly resilient, but like Iraqis, if I go through phones that I used to have, you know, a lot of the people I knew are dead. Um, I think it's hard to look at Iraq without a sense of grief at what was lost. Are there many Iraqis who would rather Saddam had never been unseated and that life had gone on as it was in 2003? This is a fascinating thing. And I think, you know, when you ask people that, the answer is so personal. It depends on what happened to your own family. You know, if, you're, if your brother disappeared during the sectarian war, you will have a different answer than if you had had relatives executed under Saddam. But, you know, even people who have had relatives executed under Saddam will say to me, it was better under Saddam. And I'll say... You can't really mean that. Your brother was executed under Saddam Hussein. And they'd say, no, we mean it. I think generally what they mean is they knew what the dangers were then. They knew how to stay safe for the most part. And after 2003, all bets were off and everything became dangerous. And if you think about Saddam, would you want Saddam back? I mean, was that something that, you know, would it be better with Saddam? My producer asked Nabil the same question. No, we, we don't have to compare. Like, it's not it's not either this or that. No, I don't, you know. I, I don't think that uh, Iraqis are, you know, should, should, should either be select, you know, one or the other, like Bush and Blair or Saddam Hussein, because they are... Bunch, all of them are a bunch of murderers. In 2019, young Iraqis from all over the country came out in protest against their government. You have generations that 
you know, the students, the high school students and the college students, they, they, they marched on the streets of Iraq in their hundreds of thousands. Baghdad's Tahrir Square, also known as Liberation Square, where thousands gathered for a sixth day. They rejected and refused these divisions that were introduced after Britain and the United States invaded Iraq, you know, the Sunnis and Shia and Christians. Freedom. We want freedom. <laughs> we don't have any freedom here. And so to hear my voice, no one hear my voice here. They were marching under, uh, you know, for Iraq. Thousands upon thousands of young protesters marching for Iraq. A new generation finding its voice, wanting to turn its back on the memories of their country run by Saddam or invaded by the Americans and the British. Wanting an Iraq that truly belongs to them. But their protests were crushed. Three more young protesters were killed today. 700 protesters were killed. This revolution already has too many martyrs. Their dissent was suppressed by their Shia government, backed up by a fellow Shia government in neighboring Iran. The consequences of Saddam's dictatorship and the decision of Bush and Blair to remove him from power still casts its long shadow. As they told me, he's a pretty charming guy. He put the charm offensive on me. <laughs> I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. It concludes that Iraq has chemical and biological weapons, that he has existing and active military plans for the use of chemical and biological weapons, which could be activated within 45 minutes. It was a huge event around the world. Yes, I think it did communicate what we were trying to communicate. Well, I'd never done anything like that before. I'd never put words into the principal cabinet officer for the president of the United States and the American people that were in essence in their import on their most important and vital issues faults and led to war. This is George W. Bush, the president of the United States. At this moment, the regime of Saddam Hussein is being removed from power and a long era of fear and cruelty is ending. Thank you very much, Mr. President. And, well, I was delighted to come here, and I've been really enthusiastic about our meetings so far. They've been absolutely excellent, very productive, um, as I hoped and, and, and expected. So we discussed a whole range of issues. I think we've, we've been through all the issues that you would expect, uh, plus, plus Thank you for listening to this first series of The Fault Line. It's a Something Else production presented by me, David Dimbleby. Joe Sykes is the producer, with additional production from Jade Scott. Mixing and sound design comes from Will Short at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. Thank you to Dasha Lisitsina, Ali Adlington, Mira Sharma, Russell Finch, Carly Mail, Alex Elder, Aaron Baker, Chris Blackley, Emma Lansdowne, Mark Rivers, and Steve Ackerman. <laughs>